I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Have you ever wanted to sit face to face with a killer? to ask them why they did it, if they regret it, and if they would do it again. With two seasons having been released so far, I Am A Killer has given those serving life sentences the opportunity to tell their story from their own perspective, while interviews with the victims, their families and detectives allow you to see both sides of the story. Hailed by critics as true crime at its most brutal, captivating and unsettling, the series has reopened the debate over rehabilitation and restitution in America's criminal justice system. This thought-provoking and emotionally confrontational approach brought us face-to-face with these killers, making it impossible to watch without your opinions constantly changing during the course of the episode. So, we've all been hooked. But now we've got exclusive access to a Q&A with the very production company who created the show for a behind-the-scenes look at what it's like to film inside correctional facilities and prisons across America and to sit directly across from some of the most notorious and damaged individuals in the American penal system. This Q&A, recorded at the offices of Bauer Media in London for our Coffee and Crime event, features the voices of Danny Tipping, head of Factual at Znack, the production company that created I Am A Killer, Ned Parker, the series executive producer, and Zoe Hines, the series producer for I Am A Killer. And both overseeing crime and investigation, there's Diana Carter, commissioning editor, and Dan Korn, VP of programming at a Networks UK. This episode contains descriptions of violent crimes and listener discretion is advised. Well, thank you very much and thanks so much for coming. It's, uh, it's great to have so many of you here. Um, we are very pleased and proud to be talking about I Am A Killer. We're delighted to have the production team uh, with us uh, today to talk about what it's like to film in correctional facilities and prisons right across America and to come face to face with these Uh, some of the most notorious and uh, damaged individuals uh, in the American penal system. So just to introduce uh, my fellow panellists, on the far right is Ned Parker, series exec producer. On my right, Zoe Hines, who is the series producer. Uh, To my left, Mr Danny Tipping, who's head of factual at Znack. It's the production company that made the film. And to my far left, Di Carter, who is the commissioning editor 
who ordered it. So um, as I say, it's uh, for the next 30 or 40 minutes, we're just going to go through and talk to you about what it was like to produce this exceptional piece of work. Um, I think I'd like to start, if that's all right, by showing the series promo, just to give you a flavor of it. <laughs> this is a true story. I committed a murder. I took his life. I was charged with capital murder. I don't know what got into me, I swear. He's setting up his parole. That's what all this is about. I am a good person. I realize I took a life, but it was an accident. She believes her own lies. She believes that this all happened in her head. Does a guy change when he comes to prison? Can he become no longer the guy that committed his crime? I don't even know how else is that. Oh. Okay, um, Danny, I'd like to start with you, if I may. Um, this is not the first time Cruz have been on death row or indeed been interviewing lifers in America. Uh, one thinks about Paul Heyman's 14 Days in May, and of course Louis Theroux has spent a lot of time on death row, so much so that some have mistaken him for a prisoner. Um, why did you go back uh, to do this film? What is it that's different about I Am A Killer? Um, thanks, Dan. Uh, well, there's been a lot of um, death row and prison access documentaries, but not a huge amount of good ones. Um, uh, and ours hasn't got Piers Morgan in. It's um, <laughs> a huge tick. Now, we, we went, you know, the first series was really about finding out if we, if we could really get access and give these prisoners an opportunity to tell their own stories. So we made a decision very early on not to have a host, not to have any narration, um, and really have the stories told um, initially from the first hand perspective of the prisoners. Um, obviously that series was a, was a great success and as we got into season two uh, we found that there were even more, more stories to tell. These stories were still coming out of the woodwork and whilst every episode starts with a murder, um, the, the stories of the individuals were very, very different um, and it soon became very clear that there was you know, many more stories to tell. Um, and I think um, I'm a Killer, if you've, you've seen it, does, does stand out from, uh, from most of the other Death Row Access shows. Um, it's got a very clear uh, sense of purpose and, and, a, and a format of, of sorts in as much as you start with the, uh, an uninterrupted interview straight down the lens from the, from the killer. Um, none of them claim they're innocent, they all own their crimes to, to different degrees. Um, and then we interview uh, various other people that were intimately involved with the crimes, so relatives, investigators, prosecutors, and then return to the killer at the end of the show. Um, for, for a second interview, which again is quite unusual, um, to have them respond to the information that we've, we've revealed throughout the course of the, the, the previous hour. So you get a, a really full uh, retelling of the story. And one of the things, and, and one of the reasons I think, that people have gone to America to interview prisoners is of course because they're accessible. Uh, it's not like you can do that in the UK. But Zoe, I wonder if you can give an understanding or a flavour of what it's like to be negotiating access to some of these places. Hi. Access is a long, uh, long drawn battle, I would say. Uh, you're looking at several levels of bureaucracy from uh, the top, so the governors in each state will have a policy relating to media access. Beyond that, of course, you've got the institution. Who's to say what's happened at the institution in the last six months? So, or, you know, sometimes even if there's been nothing happening, it's just, uh, it's just a policy. You know, we don't want to invite media scrutiny to what we are doing within these walls. Uh, so there are several layers to it. Quite often you'll find a really, really interesting story and months down the line you are still talking to this inmate and saying, we'd love to tell your story, but to be honest, 
we're trying to get through this wall of uh, checklists with the DOC and with the government and, and also with the institution. And, you know, some of them don't let media crew in on a Thursday or, you know, some of the rules are very arbitrary. <laughs> oh, you can't possibly come on the first Monday of the month. Well, that's when we're in small town Ohio. So, you know, but it's, it's case by case and it's always uh, worth it when you eventually get get through. <laughs> So it goes without saying, I mean, some of these places are, are tough to work in. I think when you go in and film in a prison, that does have an effect on you. Um, interestingly, in the case of Joseph Murphy, he was sentenced to death, but then his sentence was uh, commuted. He was got a reprieve, I think, a week before he was uh, due to uh, die by lethal injection. And the, um, the Ohio St uh, Supreme Court uh, said there's no other case in which a defendant was as destined for disaster as was Joseph Murphy. So these are quite deeply damaged individuals, as you, as you would imagine. But Ned, I wonder if you can give an insight into how you select the subjects for each film. Um, well, it takes a long time. We write uh, a lot of letters. So for this series, for the 10 films that we've made, we sent out something like two, two and a half thousand written letters. Um, you can only communicate with the people, uh, with the inmates, by writing, you can't call them, you can't Skype, um, they don't have access to anything like that. And that can take a long time, so it can take about three weeks just to get a reply. And you get a lot of, uh, of uh, responses come through. I think we're looking for stories which are, first of all, the person has to admit to the crime. We don't want anyone who's uh, casting doubt on their conviction. But we are looking for stories which will tell us something a little bit more about situations as to why somebody would have uh, taken somebody else's life. So. Joseph there, I think, is a good example of that. Um, he was destined for disaster, as they say. He had a, a history of childhood sexual and physical uh, abuse, which was unlike anything else. Um, he simply didn't have the cognitive abilities to be able to understand fully what he was doing. And though it's a very, very brutal murder, which he uh, committed, uh, eventually after 24 years on death row, he, uh, his sentence was commuted and changed to life, life without the possibility of parole. And... Um, that was done purely on the basis of, of his background and the fact that he wasn't able to uh, yeah, cognitively understand what he was doing in the same way. Mm. And I think that he, the, the niece of his victim actually spoke up for him at his, at his hearing. So it's quite interesting, and I want to get into it later, the relationship between the perpetrators and indeed the family members, which uh, is, is quite, un, you know, it's quite unusual in many, many ways. Um, before we do that, I wanted to go into another of the facets of this series that differs from the first series of I Am A Killer, and that is the inclusion of women inmates. Uh, and um, this, was, um, this was very important, I think, for us as a network. Di, uh, give us a, a flavour of why you felt it was important to uh, get women in this series. Um, I think the, on approaching the second season, it's very much for us about it's not broken. We loved the first season. It was really powerful. And actually, in trying to produce a second season, it's about how can you uh, um, embellish that? How can you make something that's in pretty good nick even better? Um, as the show um, slates tell you, under 10% of the um, killers in the US are, or convicted killers are women. Astounding in itself, that stat. Um, and this amazing crew got out of our 10 stories, there's three women in there. Um, and, and actually, even though I knew we had three women coming, there's something quite unnervingly fascinating about, as a viewer, which is always how I watch stuff, is sitting opposite it and seeing them settle in and looking that female killer in the eye. 
there is something different about it. Really sorry, everybody, but there just is. There's something really unnervingly different about looking a female killer in the eye because you're like, come on, really could have tried harder on that one. Could have done better. Yeah, I don't know, from a woman watching a woman, I'm like, that's, you know, it, it was quite disappointing. I was disappointed in those killers. Um, and so I think in something so simple, to put three women in there, it's almost like that's all you need. It's a less is more approach in terms of how to bring back a second season, make it different, make it unique, give us, the viewers, something different to come back to. It's quite an inclusive way, and it really is incredible, powerful storytelling. It is, and um, here is the first of those women. Uh, this will be the opening show of the series featuring Lindsay Haugen, who in 2015, in a car park of a Walmart in Montana, strangled uh, Robbie Mast to death. He was only 25, and he had his whole life ahead of him, but I made the choice. I took his life, and there's nothing I can do to undo it. I just adored him. He was my best friend. There was a time when we were driving. I was looking at the scenery, just enjoying it. Thinking, Man, this is awesome. Look around us. And he looks at me and he holds my hand and he says, I wish I could just be happy with you, but I'm not. He kept telling me he wanted to see what the next life was like. He was hurting. When we got to Billings, we sat in the parking lot at Walmart. We had wine to drink and enjoyed the sun. And we got back in the truck and he motioned again, you know, that he was shooting himself in, in the head. I thought we were having a nice day, but now here he is again, just wanting to die. And I asked, is that really what you want? And he said, yes. And I said, are you sure? And he said, yes. So I said, okay. So yeah, it's a, a powerful, powerful story that, and we'll come back to that. But when you're sitting across the desk and you're doing that interview, mm -hmm. what, what feelings are going through your mind? <laughs> that particular when, one. Yeah, yeah. Um, Lindsay is mesmeric as you can see. Uh, her intonation, the rhythm of her speech, her diminutive stature, she's, she's smaller than me. So um, you, not only is scepticism healthy in this job, it is integral to prison interviews because you go in thinking one thing, two hours across a table with Lindsay, you will be feeling very challenged whatever perspective you went in with. And in her case, she has a very compelling history of domestic abuse, domestic violence towards her, which is heartbreaking. And she's real when she's telling you that story and how it relates to her actions that day. She fully believes the story that she is telling you. So there is truth within what might be questionable on a, on a more abstract, objective basis. It's very difficult. It's uh, endlessly challenging and endlessly interesting. And that, one of the interesting things about the series is, the, is interviewing them twice, I think, because that will come through on the first interview, and you may have read the facts of the case, but I would imagine that once you've heard from people around the relatives of the victims or the law enforcement and you go back for the second interview, things might be a bit different. Ned, did you, did you get a sort of real different feel from that second interview? Yeah, the, we do two interviews with everyone, mainly because um, in Texas uh, they give us one hour. So you only have one hour with an inmate. 
and you're not allowed to interview them again for another 90 days. And we realised early on that when we were going to interview these, uh, these inmates, one hour wasn't going to be enough to tell their story. So we would have to go back. So we used that as a, what might have been a limitation, as a kind of a format point. And it's turned out to be a really strong part of it because the first interview is very much their interview. So we're going to ask them to tell their story, their version. And we don't generally kind of interject too much. We allow them, they've had a lot of time to think about it and to present out what their, their version of events is. And then when we go back for the second interview, that's the time when we can question them a little bit more after having spoken to relatives of the victims, their relatives, investigators, whoever else. But there's also a difference in them. They're very kind of geared up on that first one. They might kind of talk very kind of quickly. They might want to really kind of push their story across. But by the time you go back the second time, they kind of feel that they know you. They feel much more relaxed. There's a different person there. Um, and I think that's quite telling. You get a, a more insight into who that person is by going twice. You see, the, the interesting thing as a viewer, I think, is that when you're watching these interviews, you start thinking about motivation for doing the film. Why is it that they're putting themselves through this? Is it cathartic for them or is there an ulterior motive? Uh, I mean, I think Lindsay's in jail for 60 years uh, in Montana women's prison. But do you, I mean, as you're interviewing them, some may have a chance for parole a lot further into the future. Is that, do you, do you think that's a motivation? Oh, undoubtedly, I, th I think that um, that comes into it. It's, it's different across the, the 20 stories we've told now. Um, some of them genuinely uh, want to tell their story. Bear in mind, we, in some cases, are the only people they've spoken to outside the prison system for, for years, if not decades in some cases. They have very little contact with, with, um, with anybody else. Their friends and family have fallen away over the decades they've been inside in prison. Um, and they're, they're keen to tell their story in, in the first series. Um, there's an episode with a heartbreaking episode with Josh Nelson, um, who has no no real hope of, of parole, and and just wanted to tell his story because he, he didn't want to be remembered for the worst thing he ever did. Um, he said there was a lot lot more to me, you know, prior to the murder, and and it's 20 years since, and he wanted to to try and express himself um, and be known and remembered with the expectation that he'll die in prison um, for the person he was before he committed the murder. So I think motivations differ. Undoubtedly, some People are trying to put their story across in the hope, perhaps, um, it will garner support. And in, in some cases, it, it genuinely has. A couple of the cases from the first season have really gathered, uh, gathered steam. But others, I think, quite genuinely, there's a, an episode in this series, um, a guy called Charles Armantrout, um, who's been in prison for a long time. And actually, we've been in correspondence with him for uh, almost three years, because he was considered for the first series, but it didn't work out timing-wise, who, who only admitted after being in prison for 17 years that he did commit the murder. Um, and part of his uh, epiphany or acceptance of his guilt um, was a sort of a real need to, to tell the story and tell the truth. Um, so I think it's a, it's a real mixed bag across the series. If you're enjoying listening to this discussion from Danny, Ned and Zoe, the makers of I Am A Killer, you may want to check out our brand new podcast series, Making A Monster, The Tapes. Featuring exclusive extended interviews with experts from the TV show of the same name, Making a Monster, The Tapes, gives an insight into the careers of the world's top psychologists, psychiatrists and pathologists, and first-hand accounts of interviewing and profiling some of the most infamous serial killers. There's also 19 episodes of chart-topping true crime series Murder Town, if you haven't binge-listened to that already. Just search for Making a Monster or Murder Town on whatever app you're listening to this on and hit that subscribe button. I want to show you an example of, of one of the uh, uh, people in the series who 
where, where I think as you're watching the film, I think it's the second film out actually, you really are questioning what his motivation is and whether or not he is as he appears or whether there's something else going on. The, this is a guy called Leo Little um, who uh, killed a Jehovah's Witness in 1998, a man called Christopher Chavez, who he was robbing at the time, took him around the back of a car, shot him in the head. Um, and since he's been in prison, he's, um, he's got God in a big way. He's become a, a sort of pastor for the prison. Um, he, after his first interview, they play, um, they play that interview to the guy who investigated the crime, uh, who's a wonderful guy called Lieutenant Butch Majeka, who is the sheriff in Kendall County, Texas. Uh, and so here is Butch listening to Leo's confession. so full of crap it just it, it, it surprises me this young man knows exactly what he did Leo little pulled the trigger because he wanted to not because he doesn't know why or some mysterious idea he had in his head or or something overtook him or he forgot that's all Leo little intended to commit murder and he did if you listen to what this man is saying he doesn't have the first clue about what he's talking about because nowhere in his conversation does he mention the term forgiveness. He wants to talk about now's the time that we come together for hope and reconciliation. It's not their responsibility to come together for hope and reconciliation. It's his responsibility to ask for forgiveness to the Chavez family, to Christopher and to his God and he hasn't done that once. So, I mean, one of the uh, strengths of the series and something that Znak, I think, have done brilliantly is get the information from the people who were there on the scene. It's not Piers Morgan telling you his thoughts, thankfully. It is, you know, the guy who investigated the actual crime, who's in touch with Christopher Chavez's family, who can comment on whether Leo Little is sincere in his remorse or not. So uh, that was a great, um, a great job doing that. Did you, as you, were, as you were creating it and as you were sort of putting the series together, did you come to conclusions as to whether you sort of about some of these people and whether you felt they were redeemable or beyond redemption or did you not allow yourself the indulgence of getting into those sorts of uh, thoughts? Uh, well, I think I would be lying if I said that you don't have those thoughts. However, um, it's really important to us that our own perspectives don't come into 
telling a balanced and respectable story about what's happened in these instances. So um, there are definitely conversations we have amongst ourselves behind closed doors uh, about how we personally feel after we've interviewed these people. Um, do we let that come across in the films? We really hope not, quite frankly. We really hope not. But I think our, um, our opinions change throughout and there's a team for each of those stories and there's disagreement continually and there's continual debate about something and um, when you walk out of that first interview you might feel one particular way and then four months later after you've been going through everything else you just suddenly think shit yeah I was wrong but do you do you set it up almost as if you're inviting the audience to be the parole board you know deciding whether or not or, or are you sort of slanting it slightly I don't know I think um any criminal justice system has a pretty kind of binary outcome of just guilt or innocence. When there's death penalty, that's exacerbated even more so of life or death. And I think I think we're asking people to make a judgment, but not necessarily not necessarily just a clear one or the other. It, it, we're trying to point out that these these things are complicated. They are enormously complicated, and there's many more nuances. And, and you feel differently on a different day. And I think what's interesting is that you find that the people who sit and watch the episodes together feel differently to the person sat on the sofa next to them. And those kind of debates and discussions about so many different facets of them, I think that's what we're trying to get across. Yeah. Okay, so here is, um, this is another uh, case, uh, and I'll declare an interest and say that I did end up having immense sympathy for this uh, guy, David Barnett, um, who killed his adoptive uh, grandparents, um, and in the process of which he used five knives, stabbed them 20 times, and, um, and it was as much a surprise to me, as I suspected maybe to you, that I did end up feeling great sympathy for him. Let's have a quick look. The damage that was done to their bodies, when I saw the reports, broken ribs, jaw completely disaligned, dozens of stab wounds with multiple knives. I don't know where they came from. They said they came from the kitchen. I don't remember getting them. I went into a state of overkill or manic rage, I lost consciousness, and I killed two innocent people. It's a heartrending uh, story, partly because of what David has suffered up to that point at the, at the hands of their son, who adopted him. Uh, so it's a very, I mean, that is a very heartrending story, and it does make you wonder why someone like David does this interview. Is it to get his story out? Well, it, I mean, it's a desperately, desperately sad uh, story and one that actually, I mean, as, as Ned said, we disagree all the time uh, and have, we're still disagreeing on episodes from season one. I think Barnett was one that maybe crystallised our, our thoughts more, more than others. Um, it's Zoe's film, Zoe directed this one um, and, and formed quite a relationship with, with David and can probably talk more to this. Yeah. I mean, it's just heart. It's just heartbreaking. Mm. I directed two of the films in the first series, and I had one that was um, a story about mental impairment and um, an inmate who had done something very junior that he was paying for for thirty-six years before I'd interviewed him. And then another one who was arguably far more typically. Um, uh, I don't know what the word would be, but uh, you know, you know, there were more questions about his intentions. Let's mm. say, mm. Um, and David. Uh, he was he was an incredible interviewee. He was so open with me. We had an hour. We had to get past. Um, I mean, you have certain points you need to hit in an interview. Mm. Obviously, I am a killer. You need people to tell you what they did. Mm. You've got one hour mm. from the minute I walk in and mm. face to face with you. 
David and I got to 50 minutes right. before I said, David, I'm really sorry, but you're going to have to tell me about what you actually did. Uh, and I think the reason for that piece of sync there is that he disassociated from the crime. So I actually had to say to him, you know, when you, when you came out of that and you saw what you'd done, tell me what you'd done. And that led to a very objective description, very short, in summary of, of what he'd actually done to his grandparents, which was, was, I mean, it'll stay with me forever. And the other thing I was going to ask you about was aftercare with, with some of these, because they are obviously damaged and vulnerable. Yeah. Do you end up being in contact with them for a long time after the film, filming's finished? Uh, it, it varies. It's always case to case. Um, we always, always inform the inmates that it's transmitting. We always um, open ourselves up to a dialogue with those that have been involved. Whether they choose to take us up on that is a, is a separate thing. There are directors from the first series who still write to their inmates. There are others, myself included, who my inmates from series one do not carry on writing to me and that's their choice. I'm, right. I'm here if they would like it's to. It always fascinates me as to what they feel when they see the series transmitted. I'd almost like to do a sort of goggle box, a sort of film <laughs> them as they're watching themselves go out. Um, uh, I wanted to go back to uh, Lindsay Haugen, the diminutive woman you, you saw earlier who strangled her boyfriend to death. The, the interesting thing, as we talked about, was that sort of second interview and the time in between which this team goes and investigates and talks to the law enforcement. In this case, they talked to a man called Detective Steve Hallam um, in Billings, Montana, who did the interrogation of Lindsay when she came in. And it's, it's really very interesting to compare her account of events, that Robbie wanted to die, and the interrogation. Let's have a quick look. Uh, my name's Steve Hallam. I've been with the Billings Police Department here in Montana for roughly 14 years. When I uh, had Lindsay step into the interview room, obviously I kind of had an idea of how Robbie lost his life, and it was just to figure out what happened and why it happened. What were you planning on doing with uh, Robbie's body? Um, I was having a hard time with that. I mean, like, like you know, I, I was having a hard time with the whole fucking thing, but I was just figuring I'd find a scarcely populated area and fucking dump him. I mean. So after she took the life from Robbie, she was going to find a place to bury him, drop him off. And it seems like a total inconvenience from her based on her testimony. And then she's going to go back to Washington and act like she never even knew Robbie. So that goes to show you just how much she loved Robbie. She didn't love Robbie. If she would have loved Robbie, she would have never done this act. Even if he begged you to do that, why did you do that? We're at the point where the interview has now turned from an interview into an interrogation. And I was pretty stunned and shocked what came out of her mouth next. Lindsay, here's the deal. I've been doing this shit for a while, okay? I buy how it happened. I buy you guys were traveling. I don't buy that he was unhappy and he faked. No, that's absolutely what happened. That's absolutely what happened. But yes, um, I kind of just wanted to kill somebody with my bare hands, honestly. Well, then that makes more sense to me. That right there was stunning, shocking. I've never had anybody say that to me in an interview room before. 
yeah, I just wanted to know what it felt like to kill someone with my bare hands. So in that moment, obviously, she sort of gives the lie to a lot of what else I think she said. I mean, Diane, when you were saying you were quite disappointed in, in the women, I mean, that is, that's quite a moment, isn't it? I mean, that's a moment of disappointment. When I saw that for the first time, I actually paused tape and rewound it. I'm like, she didn't just say that. It, it was my jinx moment, and I, call, I think I called it that, you know, you know and, and she's on episode one for a really good reason, because it's a, it's a classic format illustration about how you spend the first 19 minutes buying into someone, and that's part of my disappointment, I buy into her, I'm, I'm with you, I'm hearing your story, and then you throw me that, what am I supposed to do with that? So I feel really let, <laughs> let down by a lot of them. Um, and I think that's... Uh, the brilliance of the filmmaking, though. Yes. No, I, I think that, I mean, that's the journey we all went on as well, because we picked that story not knowing about that tape, uh, not having seen that, that footage. Uh, it was a really, really strong story, and Lindsay was a really strong character of and in herself. And then we had the same curveball, and we all sat there looking at each other. What, what are we going to do now? She's clearly lying. Um, and and where, does that, you know, where does that sit in the film? Um, because it came to us later in, in the piece. We wanted to sort of maintain that within the film. And I think there's several um, uh, examples of that throughout the series, that we, we thought we went down one road, thought we were telling one story, um, and ostensibly believing the, the version of events that the, the prisoner, the inmate, had told us, only to find out some completely contradictory evidence. Yeah, and the, I mean, the interesting thing about that case is that Robbie Mast... Uh, the, the victim's family are in touch with Lindsay Haugen, aren't they? Um, his, his mother, his, uh, his mother and um, stepfather are. They're in, they're in touch with Lindsay. They've uh, forgiven her, um, and they have a, a relationship with her now. Yeah, which is incredible, really, and it sort of restores one's faith in the human spirit that um, that they have found it in their hearts to forgive forgive her for that. One of the things that this makes me uh, wonder about is the effect of the American penal system on people. The, the, the difference between how they appear when they're arrested and after some time in incarceration. And you mentioned uh, Billy Armantrout, Charles Billy Armantrout, was picked up in the <coughs> mid-90s for murdering his uh, grandmother in his notter. And he was obviously brought in in a, in a bad way. But I think it's just interesting the journey that he clearly has been on uh, within the p prison system. And I think we got, a, we got a quick clip of when he was brought in and how he appears now. You have the right to remain silent. Do you understand that? Yes. Uh, anything you say can will be used against you in a court of law. Do you understand that? Yes. Tell us what happened Saturday morning, starting with the uh, time that you woke up. Well, Rick came over. Rick who? Uh... Lacey. Rick Lacey came over, <coughs> banging on the door. I think it's fair to say that I destroyed my family a long time ago. When I shot my father, and even before that. Then, I think I hurt my family again. I mean, like, soul-wrenching pain. Well, you know, people always want to say, I'm sorry. That doesn't work. When you ring a bell, the bell doesn't unring. You can't unravel time and go back. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So he confessed after 17 years inside, didn't he? He wasn't, he wasn't, because he was trying to pin it on Rick Lacey, who you mentioned there. Uh, for years, he, he did blame his friend Rick Lacey um, and, uh, and then confessed after a period of um, rehabilitation and, and um, impact on victim classes in, in prison, um, finally accepted responsibility. And it's a really good example um, uh, of, of what Ned said earlier, that the stories they're telling us, they genuinely believe however truthful they, they turn out to be. Um, in this instance, he'd been telling that same story since prior to his conviction, 17 years after, to the point where he genuinely believed it to be the case. Um, and then suddenly those, those walls broke down and, and he told the truth and took full responsibility. Um, but he's been in prison now, Ned, for 30 years? 34 years. 34, 34 years with, with no hope of parole. He's actually only five years older than me. Right. Um, but 35 years yeah, I've got bad news he, he looks about <laughs> yeah, 10 yeah, years yeah, thanks. <laughs> no, but he um, obviously he, was, he wasn't in great shape when he went in prison he, he wasn't but it's quite in, I mean the, the, again the, the sort of slightly alarming thing it makes you think as you watch some of this is, or I find myself asking myself is does prison work you know does, does the system in America work there's also probably more column inches on the American penal system because they still have capital punishment uh, and it just, you know, I mean, Billy Armantrout was a completely lost cause. You know, he would have been dead in a ditch. Uh, unfortunately, you know, he, he managed, he killed somebody else. He shot his own father. He killed his grandmother. But somehow, after 17 years, he managed to confess. And since then, he has created some sort of life for himself. Um, well, absolutely. I think there's, there's no doubt the way in which uh, Armantrout's life was, was going. I mean, he was heavily addicted to crack uh, during the crack ep- epidemic of the 90s. He was committing petty crime and some more serious um, armed robberies and eventually kills his grandmother for um, a fix. Um, and I don't think I'm giving the game away to say that the, the, the police were poor that in the car on the way to the police station he says he'll admit everything if they let him smoke crack one more time. Um, and they don't and then he goes on to deny the crime. But um, he, he was in a bad way and he was going to end up, I, I would imagine, if not for that crime, uh, for another one further online in prison um, and he, he has turned his life around in as much as he's, he's healthy, he's uh, educated, uh, he accepts responsibility for his crime, he has little or no hope of, of seeing the outside of prison anytime soon um, but he's accepted that and he's asking for nothing but, but forgiveness so um, I think that would be an example of justice served. What an episode of Inside Crime and Investigation. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we did. Leave us a note in the review on your podcast app or get in touch on social media. Just tag it with hashtag IamAKiller or search for at Crime and Investigation. Over at crimeandinvestigation.co.uk, you can also find more information on all our TV series, profiles on all the serial killers mentioned and much more.
This episode of Inside Crime and Investigation was hosted and edited by me, Chloe Frost. How do you get into the mind of the devil when that devil is trying to get into yours? Making a Monster the Tapes is an exclusive podcast series featuring unheard interview footage taken from Crime and Investigation's brand new TV series, Making a Monster. It is Rose West who is preparing the children very forcibly for their father's sexual attentions and that she herself is going to be involved in. He thought there'd been no witnesses, which meant that when he turned around to Carter, he had to come back through the very village that he'd abducted her from, and that was, that was his downfall. There was one, another serial killer. He said, uh, when you're falling asleep, you think about your holiday. When I'm falling asleep, I think about my next murder. He had kind of given up on the prospects of Stephen Griffiths having a successful, happy life. And he was putting a lot of his energy into this alter ego, this other persona. They have a joy and a delight in sadistically taking, hurting and killing someone else. Not just once, over and over again. And their goal is, well, you're not going to catch me and I'll carry on until you do. Subscribe to Making a Monster, The Tapes, on your favourite podcast app, and watch Making a Monster, the eight-part TV series on Crime and Investigation, Mondays at 9pm. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.